are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, your word speaks the truth. We have read it together. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it cannot rescue. You have proclaimed to us in your word, I am the Lord and besides me there is no savior. I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn back? I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. And your very son has proclaimed to us the truth. He has said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's clear that you are the God of salvation. And Father, we marvel at you. We marvel at your work in redemption your plan before the foundation of the world, how you chose a people for salvation. We marvel at you, Lord Jesus. We marvel at all of your accomplishments. We marvel at your incarnation. We marvel at your ministry, your preaching, your healing. We marvel at your cross and your resurrection. We marvel at the accomplishments of your work, how you bruised the head of the serpent, how you atoned for our sins, how you tasted death for us. And sovereign spirit, we marvel at your gracious work. You have taken all that belongs to Christ and you've brought it near to us. You've brought it to bear upon our souls. You've awakened us from our death sleep of sin. You've brought new life to us. You've given us faith. You have worked powerfully in our hearts. And so we praise you and we lift high our voices and we sing your glorious deeds. Your word teaches us how we respond to you. The book of Revelation chapter seven says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. You indeed are the God of salvation. You are the worker of redemption. And it is our joy to sing your praises and it's our joy to look at your word and it's our joy to behold you by faith. You indeed are the God of salvation and in light of your salvation we come as your gathered people and we confess our sins. We confess our sins. We've, we've trusted in the great army. We have trusted in the war horse. We have looked for our salvation in the things and the ways of this world. We've trusted in wealth. We've trusted in education. We've trusted in luxuries. And we come to you together and we pray for forgiveness. We cast aside our idols and commit ourselves to repentance. And we ask that you would teach us to walk in faith, that you would teach us to always look to you and you alone. We ask you that you would show the vanity of all idols, 
that you would indeed show us how empty the great armies of the earth are, that you would show us how weak war horses are. We ask that you would show us once again the excellency of the things found in the gospel, that you would show us the precious power of the Son of God, that you would teach us again about his, his death and his resurrection, that you'd make plain to us the powerful actings of the Spirit, that you would show us true salvation. And Father, we, we desire to see your salvation. We desire to see your salvation right now in our midst as we gather together. We are in need of your salvation. We forsake all worldly ways and we look only to your gospel now. We look to your son and we look to your spirit. We ask that you would work powerfully in our midst and that you would administer salvation through the preaching of your word. And Father, as we look out into our our city, our neighborhoods, oh Father, we desire to see your, your powerful workings among us. You are the God of salvation and we desire to see the fruit of your work around us. We ask, would you gather a people for yourself? We ask that you would glorify the name of your son in this city. Oh, what a great day it will be when many men and women and children speak of the great things of Christ Jesus saying, I have found a great Savior in Christ. Father, we pray that you would shed abroad your love in this city and that we would see it. We pray, add to your church. We pray, prosper your gospel among us. Father, we are so thankful that we can turn to your word this morning and we confess we need your word. We are in desperate need of it. We cannot live without your word. Father, we pray that you would bring your word near to our hearts, that you would teach us how we're to relate to each other, that you would teach us how we're to relate to Jesus. We ask now that you be pleased to work in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, grab your Bibles and open them up. We're going to have two scripture passages this morning, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. So you want to keep a finger in both places. So our first passage is Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 18. So place a finger there. And then our second passage is Mark chapter 13. Verses 24 through 27, so place a finger there as well. So Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. 
a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So keep your finger there. Turn to Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Father, we ask now that you would indeed bless the reading and the preaching of your words. So last weekend, last Sunday, we looked at the entirety of Mark chapter 13, and our aim in last weekend's sermon was to figure out what Jesus was talking about in this chapter, and, and we made an argument, I made an argument last week, and my argument was this, everything that we find in Mark chapter 13 has been historically accomplished in Jesus' ministry, so thinking about Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and then in the events surrounding 70 AD when Rome raised the temple to the ground and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So if you missed last week's sermon, you are missing out and you should go back and listen to it carefully. You can find it on the website, it's on our YouTube channel. And what I'm going to do just briefly is give us a refresher about what we find in Mark chapter 13. So Mark chapter 13 starts with this focus on the temple. And Jesus makes clear what's going to happen to the temple. Verse 2, Jesus says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And the disciples hear what Jesus says and they're, they're amazed. They're confused. The temple was the very center of Israel's life center of religion, center of politics. They even thought it was the very center of the world. And so they asked Jesus about this, verse four. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they say, well, when Jesus and what sign? 
And Jesus doesn't immediately answer their question because he looks at his disciples and he, need, he understands that they need to know something. They need some pastoring. And so he gives them two warnings. We find the first warning in verse five. He, he tells his disciples, see that no one leads you astray. And then in verse nine, he says to his disciples, be on your guard. And Jesus understands that after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, trouble, persecution, is gonna draw near to the church. There are gonna be folks who come and say, I'm the Messiah. There's gonna be folks who come to say, the Messiah is over there, go out to him. And what Jesus desires of his church, of his people, is faithfulness. That they would not turn away from him, that they would endure to the very end. And finally, Jesus goes about answering their questions. Well, when and what sign? Jesus gives two signs. We find the first in verse 10. Jesus says, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then Jesus gives us a definite and particular sign in verse 14. He says, the abomination of desolation. And what Jesus is saying, disciples, when you see all of these things happen, church, when you see all of these things happen, you need to take decisive, immediate action. Destruction, the wrath of God is coming near to Jerusalem, so flee the city, even more, flee the area of Judea, so you're not caught up in what's going to happen. And then Jesus gives his disciples more than what they bargained for. He goes to explain what all of this means in verses 24 through 27. He wants his disciples to understand when they see all of these events take place that they they know that Israel has come under the wrath of God, that the Son of Man has been glorified at the right hand of the Father, and that a people will be gathered from all nations to worship Jesus. So that's what we worked through last week, trying to make sense of all of that. Now we get to do the work of application. And so we used this illustration last week. We talked about Mark chapter 13 as this, as this great mountain, glorious, mysterious, rugged. And our job is, is to climb this mountain. We're mountaineers. We need to go up this mountain. And that's what we did last week. And we, we did hard work to get to the top. We mined the Old Testament. We went to the book of Daniel. We went to all these different places. We carefully weighed the words of Jesus. We compared Jesus' words with Paul's words. We looked at the historical record. We talked about this Syrian king by the name of Antiochus. But we've made it to the top, and now our job is to stand at the peak of the mountain and look out and see and take in the beauty. And so we want to ask two questions this morning in light of Mark chapter 13. And the first question has to deal with interpretation in the life of the body. And we're going to ask, well, how should we relate to each other in light of Mark chapter 13? How should we relate to each other? And the second question is is dealing with the text itself. And that question is, well, how should we relate to Jesus in light of Mark chapter 13? And so we can start with the first question. How should we relate to each other in light of Mark chapter 13? So if you spend any amount of time studying Mark chapter 13, if you crack open a few different commentaries, if you find a few different articles and begin reading them, if you listen to a few different sermons, you'll realize very quickly that there are a lot of different views on Mark chapter 13. And so with all of these differences, with all these different views on Mark 13, we we have to ask, well, what happens to us as the body of Christ, as a covenanted people, 
when we disagree about Mark chapter 13. And perhaps you carefully listened to last week's sermons. You took notes. You went home and you, you open up your Bible and you follow the cross-references like a detective, searching out the context, trying to figure out what Jesus is doing. You even listen to the sermon again online, but you, but you still don't agree with the historical position. You still might favor a mixed view or a future view. And we ask, well, if we hold differences about what Mark chapter 13 means, how should we relate to each other? How should we relate to each other? And there are two common temptations that we deal with when we disagree about what the Bible says. First, we're tempted to to fight about our disagreement. So when our theology doesn't match up with someone else's, we may move towards that person. We might move towards them and rebuke them or rebut them. Or at other times when we fight about doctrine, we simply just pull away. We pull up stakes and we we head out of town. Well, we're not getting along here. I better go find some other people that will get along with me better. We'll see things my way. There's a second temptation as well. There's the temptation to be apathetic about disagreement. And so when our theology doesn't line up with someone else's, we, we simply overlook the difference and move on. Instead of focusing in on the disagreement, we we look to what we have in common. We might even say, well, this is all a mystery to me, what I find in Mark chapter 13. How can I understand this? Does God even want us to understand what these, does God want us to understand what these words say to us? And so as we think about these two temptations, we have to understand that there are elements of good and evil in both of them. And if we think the best of both of these positions, there's, there's actually good in them. You think about the person who fights. That person may fight because they actually love the truth of the Bible. They're valiant for the truth of the Bible, and they're going to hold the truth of the Bible up no matter what and no matter the cost. And the person who's apathetic may overlook disagreement, not because they hate the truth or because they don't care about the truth, but because they love the unity of the body of Christ and they want to see the body flourish and grow up. But we have to say this. Both of these positions in their present form miss out on something very important. And they're missing out on wisdom and discernment. And so when we think about it, there are times when we need to fight about doctrine and not to fight about doctrine would be sinful. We see this in the Bible, Galatians chapter one. In Galatians chapter one, Paul is writing this letter and he he pulls out his weapons and he fights. He says to the Galatians, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. But if we follow Paul's ministry, we see that he doesn't do this all the time. The same Paul who fights with the Galatians, we say, urges this kind of behavior in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently doing evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And so in the book of Galatians, Paul pulls out his sword and he's rebuking. He's going to war. Let him be a curse. Let him be anathema. And then in the book of 2 Timothy, we find him extolling the the virtues of patience and gentleness. And we see these two extremes in Paul's ministry and he, he seems content with these. And so we ask, well, how do we know when we should fight? And how do we know when we should practice patience 
and gentleness. And so what we need to do and what we need to learn how to do is practice something called theological triage. Triage is a word that comes from the hospital system. So when you go to the emergency room, you're met by a triage nurse and that nurse at intake determines the care you need and how urgent you need the care. So for example, a man with a heart attack is gonna be treated differently than a man with a broken finger when he goes to the emergency room. And when we think about the triage system, we, we think this is preciously important that these two people are being treated differently. And as we think about the triage system, we don't deny that both of these men need care. The man with a broken finger, he'd like that finger set and straightened. He might like some pain reliever. And the man with a heart attack needs life-saving measures. He might even need surgery. But we understand something. And this is what the triage system gets. The, The triage system understands that one of these men needs care right away. And if that man doesn't receive care right away, he might die. And while the other man does need care, he can wait a few hours. And if he waits a few hours, it's really not going to affect his life at all in the long term. So the triage system values things differently. One man is going to get care before the other, and we say that's preciously good. And so as we think about the triage system, we ask, well, what makes the triage system work? Well, what ultimately makes the system work is that nurse at intake. That nurse at intake needs to be a wise person. That nurse needs to have knowledge and understanding. That nurse needs to understand the the presenting symptoms and how threatening this condition is and the status of the hospital and what care can be given at this time. As we think about it, the same principles carry over to our life in Christ. As God's people, we're called to love God's word, all of it. Whether we're looking at God's word in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether God's word is hard or easy to understand, whether God's words are controversial or welcome in our time, where people call to love God's word, every single word we find. But at the same time, we hold on to the doctrines that we find in the Bible differently. Not all doctrines that we find in the Bible are to be held onto the same way. So, for example, we hold on to the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone differently than we hold on to our understanding of the millennium. Or for another example, we hold on to our doctrine of Christ's deity differently than we hold on to our understanding of the spiritual gifts in the present time. And we say this is a preciously good thing because if we held on to these doctrines the same way, if we held on to the doctrine of justification the same way we held on to the doctrine of the millennium, we might be making unnecessary splits in the body of Christ. We might be drawing lines where we shouldn't be drawing lines. If we held on to the doctrine of Christ's deity the same way we held on to our understanding of the spiritual gifts, we might be drawing lines in places we shouldn't be drawing lines. Lines. Now the success of theological triage, understanding how we're to hold on to different doctrines differently, is directly dependent upon the practitioner of it. We need to be wise, and that's the call for us as the people of God. We need to be wise, meaning that we need to have knowledge and understanding. We need knowledge. This means as Christians, we need to know what the Bible actually says. 
We need to know what the Bible says about the great doctrines, about sin, about salvation, about God, about Christ, about holiness, about the life of the Spirit, about the end of all things. And if we don't have knowledge, if we're ignorant about what the Bible teaches, we're going to make a wreck about wreck of our fellowship in Christ. Our, our, our body, our, the unity of the body is going to get all screwed up. And so we need knowledge. We need to understand what the Bible says, but we also need understanding. And understanding gets at the idea of how all of this knowledge fits together. It's one thing to know about the doctrine of sin, but it's another thing to know about the doctrine of sin in light of the rest of the Christian story and how it should be applied to the Christian life. If we don't have understanding, if we don't know how all the doctrines of the Bible fit together, and if we don't know how all the doctrines of the Bible apply to our lives and come to us, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to make a wreck out of our fellowship. And so we can get really practical here. We worked through Mark chapter 13 last week. I argued for the historical position. What happens when we disagree about Mark chapter 13? Should it disrupt our fellowship in the Lord? Should I, a person who holds the historical position, go to someone who holds a future position and rebuke them? Saying you must turn from that interpretation. You must submit. Or should we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's tough. Let's move on to chapter 14. How should we, how should we work through our differences? Well, if we operate with wisdom, if we understand theological triage as all, we will find something like this. Whatever view we take on Mark chapter 13, whether it's future, whether it's the mixed view, or whether it's the historical position, we find that it doesn't impinge on the central superstructure of the Bible. It doesn't overthrow our, our doctrine of God, or our doctrine of salvation, or our doctrine of Christ, or the doctrine of the Spirit, or the doctrine of the church. And so we don't go around rebuking each other for different opinions on Mark chapter 13 if they're in these mainline positions. We don't separate from each other over our different positions. We don't hold on to our interpretation of Mark chapter 13 as we hold on to our understanding of, of doctrines like the Trinity or justification of, by faith or the deity of Christ. We, we hold on to our understandings differently. And we understand that there can be diversity of opinion in the body of Christ when we come to this chapter and how we read it, and that's actually okay. That's one part of theological triage, but there's another part. And because of our love for God and his word and our desire to understand it and apply it, we just don't shrug our shoulders and walk away from it. We want to understand it. And just because there's a diversity of opinion doesn't mean there isn't a right answer. There is one right answer. Somebody's right and, and somebody's wrong. And so this means that we don't stop dialoguing about it. We might even disagree with each other about it. And so the call for us as a body from this chapter is not to fight or to shrug our shoulders, but to press into each other to dialogue about the text, to seek the truth as a covenant people of God as we learn how Mark chapter 13 fits into the great story that the Bible gives us. And so we ask, well, how should we relate to each other? Well, we need to learn theological triage, which essentially means we need to learn how to be a wise and understanding people. So that's the first question. 
We're talking about how we, we use the text. And now we get to talk about the text itself. And so we're going to ask our, our second question. And it's this, well, how should we relate to Jesus? How should we relate to Jesus? So we've been working through Mark's gospel for some time. And you can compare Mark's gospel and traveling through it to going to an art gallery. If you've gone to an art gallery before, you walk in and, and on the walls there are paintings and they're arrayed and you, you make your way through, through the gallery and you're presented with a portrait after portrait after portrait. And that's the way Mark's gospel kind of works. And so we've witnessed stunning portrait of Jesus after stunning portrait of Jesus. And think about this with me. We've witnessed Jesus forgive a man's sins and then we heard Jesus proclaim, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We've witnessed Jesus heal on the Sabbath and in that context we heard Jesus preach, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We've witnessed Jesus preaching and teaching in Galilee and we heard him proclaim, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. We've also heard him say, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. We've witnessed Jesus in the middle of the storm rise up and say, peace be still. We've witnessed Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah flanking both sides. And we've heard the word of the Father, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And as we look at these portraits Mark Mark has given us, we, we see something that this Jesus we meet in Mark's pages has staggering authority. He has authority over sin, he has authority over sickness, he has authority over the calendar, he has authority over the kingdom of God, he has authority over nature, he has authority even over the greatest prophets of Israel. And as we move through this gallery, each painting, each portrait is glorious in its own right and we can just pause and look at it and take in its glory. But we realize as we're working through this gallery that each portrait is preparing us for something greater. The glory is growing as we work through this. And what are all these portraits preparing us for? Well, they're preparing us to see Jesus' authority, not just over sickness, sin, the calendar, but Jesus' authority over absolutely everything, everywhere. And so I believe at the heart of Mark chapter 13 is verse 26. I think this is the central heartbeat of Mark chapter 13. This is what everything revolves around. And so in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, Jesus says to his disciples, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So this, what Jesus says, comes from Daniel chapter 7, and we looked at it briefly last weekend, but we're going to look closer at it because there are riches here for us. So you have one finger in the book of Daniel, so go back to Daniel chapter 7. We need to look at what Daniel says if we're to understand what Jesus is talking about. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel tells us what he sees. He has a vision. He goes on, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." 
So we ask, well, what's going on here? There's this glorious scene. Thousands, we can't even number them, are, are gathered before the Ancient of Days. Well, simply put, the court is in session. That's what Daniel's telling us. The God of Israel has picked up the gavel. He is, he's taken his seat at the judge's bench and he's ready to pass out a verdict. And as we read these verses in Daniel chapter seven, we're, we're, we're naturally led to ask a set of questions. We ask, well, who is the God of Israel judging and what is he going to say about them? And so we have to read on. We find the first verdict in verses 11 and 12. And in these two verses, the God of Israel passes judgment on the godless nations of the world. Daniel writes, And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so Daniel makes clear when the Ancient of Days judges, the beasts of the earth, the godless nations, are going to be overturned. Key word, their dominion was taken away. Daniel's saying they're not going to rule anymore. But we keep reading. We go down to verses 13 and 14, and we find that there's a second judgment, and this judgment is different than the first. It's a vindication. It's a setting of things right. So Daniel keeps writing. He says, And I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel makes clear that when the ancient of days judges... There's going to be a great upheaval in the entire world. What's going to happen? Well, the godless nations who've ravaged the earth and have persecuted the people of God are going to be stripped of their power. They're not going to rule anymore. But in their place, there's something else going to happen. There's going to come a figure like no other, and he will rule. And this man's rule is completely different than the rest of human history. This man will not just rule for a season or a time. No, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. This man's rule will not be susceptible to to failure. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This man will not just rule over one nation or one people group or, or one piece of land. No, Daniel says all people, nations, and languages will serve him. We cannot overstate this. What we find in Daniel chapter 7 was the dream of Israel. This is what they were looking forward to. The day when the God of Israel, the Ancient of Days, would take his seat in judgment and pass out these two verdicts. This is what Israel was longing for. Come, O God, and reign over us. And so in light of Daniel chapter 7, we ask, well, who is this glorious son of man? Who is this man who's going to take dominion of the kingdom of God and rule over all things? And the answer is right in front of us in Mark chapter 13. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now we have to understand the point of all this. We have to connect the dots between Daniel chapter 7 and Mark 13. So we have to think about this. Mark 13 is Jesus' longest discourse in the gospel of Mark. And as readers, as students of the Bible, that should make us think, hmm, this is a really important passage for Jesus and for the church. 
More importantly, this chapter contains Jesus' last significant instructions before his death. We'll hear Jesus talk more in chapters 14 and on. But as we think about this is Jesus' last significant instructions for his disciples. And what I think Jesus is doing here is he's inviting us to read his passion account through the lens of Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is saying the dreams of Israel are coming true, but they're going to come true in the most unexpected way possible. Keep reading and find out. And Jesus preaches to us, and I think this is what he is saying if we get under the logic of this connection. Jesus is saying this to us, dear friends, I'm going to be surrounded by the beasts of this earth. In their rebellion against God, they're going to surround me on every side. They're going to rage and they're going to roar. They're going to condemn and they're going to kill me. The Son of Man is going to be handed over. The Son of Man is going to suffer. The Son of Man is going to die. But don't be alarmed. I've told you all about this three times. This is all according to the plan, just like you find in Daniel chapter 7. But get this. When you observe my death, when you observe my resurrection, when you observe my ascension to the right hand of the Father, what you are seeing is this. It's the defeat of the ungodly nations. In these events, the Ancient of Days is taking his judgment seat and he is stripping them of all dominion, of all power, of all glory. And dear friends, when you observe my death, my resurrection, my ascension, what you are seeing above all things is the glorification of the Son of Man. What you are seeing is my enthronement as king over all. Friends, when you observe my death, my resurrection, my ascension, what you are seeing is the end of the world as it once existed. It will never be the same. And friends, when you see my death, my resurrection, my ascension, what you are seeing is the beginning of a new world. All things are coming under my sovereign authority. What you are seeing is my enthronement as the one true sovereign ruler over all things. And this is how Jesus wants us to read chapters 14, 15, and 16. In these events, the Ancient of Days is taking his judgment seat. He is judging the nations and he is vindicating his son. The dreams of Israel coming true in the most unexpected events ever. Now what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 13 was taken to heart by the apostles. It's so interesting when you read the rest of the New Testament that when the apostles preach about Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, they use and they speak in Danielic terms. When they preach the gospel, they preach the great reversal of all things of Jesus. And the apostles, the way they preach the gospel, confirm our interpretation of making this link between Daniel chapter 7 and what's going on in Mark chapter 13. They confirm this. They're saying you're, right, you're on the right track. So think about this. When Paul considered the passion of Jesus, his humility, in taking the form of a servant and dying on a cross, he writes this in Philippians chapter two. He says, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul looks at the passion account and he says, this is the great reversal of all things. And Paul's not alone. When when John considered the death and resurrection of Jesus, he saw the same thing. John writes this in Revelation chapter 5. 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And Paul and John are not alone, but the author of Hebrews says the same thing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Hebrews chapter one, the author says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. After making purifications for sins, he did what? Well, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. And the apostle Peter joins in the chorus. He confirms this as well. When he considers the death and resurrection of Jesus, he makes this great point in Acts chapter two. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the apostles are saying, if you have eyes of faith, when you read chapters 14, 15, and 16, when you see Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, what you are seeing is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter seven. The world has changed. And so the question is, well, how do we relate to Jesus in light of what we find in Mark chapter 13? How do we relate to Jesus? Well, Mark chapter 13, verse 26 should add precious texture to our understanding of Jesus. Should add precious texture to our relationship with Jesus. When we take up the instruments of faith and repentance, we find in the gospel the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so when we come to Jesus in the gospel, what do we find? Well, we find our sins forgiven. We find our transgressions cleared. We find our impurities cleansed. And so when we come to Christ in the gospel, we find his humility and his servant. We find the suffering servant who undergoes the wrath of God for us. And this, we say, is exceedingly precious. But we must also understand that this is not all that we find in the gospel of Jesus. That is one part of the gospel. There is more to this great gospel when we look at the scriptures. And so in light of Mark chapter 13, verse 26, we can say this. When we take up the instruments of faith and repentance, we find in the gospel the Son of Man who comes upon the clouds with great power and glory. We find the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we find the Son of Man who rides upon the clouds. And this means when we come to Jesus, we find ourselves bending low on our knees, confessing, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This means when we come to Jesus, we find ourselves numbered among the redeemed who sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This means when we come to Jesus, we find the hopes of Israel fulfilled. We come finding the words of Daniel chapter seven gloriously true. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In the gospel we find the unimaginable humility of Jesus, the son of man who serves. And in the same gospel we find the unimaginable glory and authority of Jesus who receives the kingdom of God and who will rule over all things. Brothers and sisters, does this not deepen our relationship with Jesus? Does, that, does this not give rich texture 
to our relationship with Jesus. The gospel teaches us to call, to, to call Jesus both our Savior and our Lord. The gospel teaches us to call Jesus both our friend and our master. The gospel teaches us to call Jesus both our propitiation and our king. The gospel teaches us to call Jesus both a lowly servant and the exalted son of man. And the gospel teaches us about ourselves. When we look into the gospel, we are called beloved and we are called slave. When we look into the gospel, we are called forgiven and we are called subjects of the great king. And so what do we learn about Jesus? How do we relate to Jesus? Well, we relate to him both as our savior and our Lord, both as the son of man who serves and the son of man who rides upon the clouds. And so may we as God's people learn how to live in light of this Jesus we find in Mark 13. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. We're so thankful for Jesus that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We're so thankful that Jesus is the one who comes upon the clouds in power and glory, that he has received the kingdom and he rules and reigns over all things and the world is different. Oh, Father, we pray now that you would give us a heart and a mind to take this truth to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.